Welcome to the Lady Boss Podcast. I'm Laura Karun. And I'm Danielle Moe, and we're the founders of Lady Boss Midwest. We created Lady Boss Midwest to connect and empower women in our community and beyond. In this podcast, we'll be talking to lady bosses, empowered women, confident in their abilities and instinct, boldly leading with heart and integrity. In the state of Minnesota, between 27 and 54 Indigenous women and girls were missing in any given month between 2012 and 2020. Though Indigenous people make up just 1% of the state's population, Indigenous women are seven times more likely than white women to be murdered. Root causes of this heightened risk for violence include colonialism, racism, and sexual objectification of Indigenous women and girls. Senator Mary Kanesh was elected to the Minnesota House of Representatives in District 41B in 2016 and elected to the Senate in District 41 in 2020. She is the first woman of Native descent to be elected a Minnesota senator. As an educator, Mary retired from her role as a public school library media specialist after 25 years of service. Mary is the daughter and granddaughter of members of the Standing Rock Lakota Sioux Tribe and is committed to supporting positive legislation for our American Indian and marginalized people in Minnesota. She is the author of the legislation and chair of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Task Force in Minnesota and the first in the nation and the Permanent Office of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives in State Government. Senator Kanesh has served as Assistant Majority Leader for the DFL House Caucus, was Vice Chair of the Education Policy, and currently sits on the Education, Mining, and Forestry and Redistricting Committees in the Minnesota Senate. All right. Thank you so much for being here, Senator Kanesh. My pleasure. I'm very happy to join you here today. So there's so much I want to talk to you about in our conversation today. So I want to dive right in and have you tell us a little bit about your journey before taking public office and kind of how you got there. Sure. Well, um, I guess what really consumed my, my attention for years and years is that I was an educator, a library media specialist for 25 years, and I, I worked in the inner city uh, Minneapolis and, and Robbinsdale where I, um, you know, worked on sharing information and literature and resources and helping kids understand, you know, what is what is actual factual information for their own learning and and reporting. Um, But I also taught technology skills. So I, you know, I, I started way back when there were little Apple computers teaching kids how to use that. And at that time, you know, First graders and, and kindergartners were considered way too young for technology. They, you know, they didn't they give us any time with those little kids. And I have to say that over the years, I bet the vast majority of my technology skills I learned from my students, uh, you know, sharing just a little bit and then them taking it um, wider. But one of the results of that was, first of all, um, really getting to understand the struggles of families in today's society over the last couple of years, um, the, the, the housing shortage and so many families, um, you know, without um, homes that they can go home to every single day and be secure that they're going to be able to pay the mortgage or pay the rent. And this came 
really clear during the um, during that housing crisis, and many people lost their housing uh, either through their own, you know, um, lack of understanding what it meant um, when they signed a mortgage agreement or whoever was owning the house that they were living in went into foreclosure, um, a number of reasons, job loss, all these sort of things. And so seeing the struggles of, of families, not only for housing, but having the resources for, um, for kids to have the, the necessi- necessary things that they need for school, including school lunches. You know, that back in the day, there was a time when if you didn't have your your lunch bill paid, you got a little peanut butter sandwich and a carton of milk. And um, there is a lot of shame that kids shouldn't have to experience because their parents are struggling along those roads. Um, you know, back back then we had a larger population of undocumented uh, 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 people in our communities. And uh, I saw firsthand how hard that was on the children as well as the parents when um, they had to be in fear of being uh, sent back to a country maybe they've never even visited themselves. So all of those things really brought me to understanding the struggles of like a common family, as well as um, understanding the struggle of educators in this day and age. Right now, it's even worse than ever uh, with, with COVID and hybrid lessons or virtual, whatever, you know, the schools are doing to at least connect with those children and continue their education. And so um, with that in mind, um, worked hard to to get elected to address educational issues. I'm also of Native American descent. Uh, my, my mother's family is from Standing Rock. So Native American issues are really foremost on my mind. And the environment, you know, I live in a a suburb outside of the Twin Cities and we have lots of little lakes and and ponds and parks and walking paths. And I want to make sure that communities still have those those outdoor activities available, as well as, you know, greater Minnesota, making sure that we're leaving our environment and our our um, our world in a better place, not just for like I say, not just for my the next generation, I have a new granddaughter, but for the next seven generations. I mean, we need to be doing a lot of work to ensure that that we have those. So those were some of the things. I raised three children. Um, now they're all adults and, and, and making me a grandmother. And uh, those were some of the things that just propelled me into, um, into public um, office. Were there any barriers that you felt to running for office or reasons why you thought maybe, I don't know, any, any hesitations? Well, I think especially for women, we, we think, you know, I, I would like to, you know, do that kind of, I would like to represent my community. I would like to work on issues that I feel are really important that need um, attention. But I think we also all think like, oh, I'm just a teacher or I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just a photographer, or I'm just this, I'm just that, you know, that word just. And uh, it, it seems so intimidating, you know, that, that we're, we don't think we're quite prepared for, for what this office or a, an elected office holds. And perhaps you're not, 
I mean, even though I thought maybe I'm kind of prepared for this, I realized early on, like, whoa, this is this is a lot more than I expected. But you figure it out. And there are lots of people to figure it out. And there are people that support you and they help you figure it out. And sometimes you just figure it out day by day by day by day. But what's important is that that um, at the core of your reason to be there is to make good, positive change. When I um, decided to run for office, I was um, still teaching. I was active in my community. So I was the chair of our Park Rec and Environmental Board, which was not an, an elected seat, but I did run for city uh, council in my community and I didn't get elected. And that was a really good practice run. That was a really good lesson on um, you know, getting out there, meeting people, sharing your ideas, listening really closely to what your community is saying. Um, so I would say that that biggest barrier are some of the barriers that we impose upon ourselves. And I just want to say that there's hardly a person that I don't know that couldn't be a state legislator or an elected official if they're, like I said, if their core being is in there for the right reasons. Absolutely. I like to tell people if you care, if you care, you're qualified. Yep. And if you're willing to listen and learn and maybe adjust your thinking at times, um, you can do it. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, but I, um, I'm on city council in Moorhead and I got into politics in 2020 and it was uh, not the year that I was planning for. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, I think I'm going to try this thing. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, whoa, yeah, <laughs> maybe, is- I don't know. <clears throat> but I felt, you know, I felt like if not now, then when? Like I'm excited and I'm passionate and I want to help the community. Now is the time to time to try. Yeah. And what was interesting for me too, is that um, while I was active in my community, I wasn't active in our local politics per se. Like I'm a, I'm a Democrat. We call them DFL, Democrat Farmer Labor um, Caucus here in Minnesota. And um, I was not active in that, but my daughter graduated with a political science degree. And she um, went to Chicago and was working as a community organizer, then came back to work on a governor's race, uh, a woman's governor race. And I thought, I want to figure this out. I want to learn about this. And so uh, they always need volunteers. Anyone running for office always needs volunteers. So if the message is you don't want to run right now or you're not ready, volunteer with a a candidate that you are um, supporting because I learned so much and that actually helped dispel a lot of my um, uncertainties or questions or you know as I started to meet more and more of the movers and shakers in the state per se I was like hey they're just a normal person like me, I mean, I could, if they can do it, I can do it, you know? So it really does help to dispel a lot of the mystery and um, the angst of running against, uh, running as a a candidate yourself. And that's a really good way to sort of ease yourself in. Yeah, absolutely. And and I like what you said, how you're not going to know everything at first. And 
nobody knows everything coming into it. Everyone's kind of in that same boat where they're like, this is, this is new and figuring out how it works. And there's lots of people to help you. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so tell us about what your role is as state senator in district 41. So what do those responsibilities look like? Sure. Well, I, I'll, I'll tell you that um, I first had four years in the Minnesota House of Representatives. So when I first ran, I ran for um, to be a, a representative. And um, those are, in Minnesota, those are reelected every two years. In the, in the Senate, it's every four years except this census year. Um, and so basically, I am representing my communities, the communities that are in my Senate district at the state capitol. There might be some really unique things that that I need to do for my for my community. So, um, um, securing bonding dollars if we need repairs for our roads or our bridges or our infrastructure. Um, we have a lot of trains that run through our community, and they like to honk their you know blow their horn. And why that sounds kind of fun, it's not so fun for those folks nearby. And so um, there is legislation that says you can't blow your train horn during certain times. I mean, that's something really unique to my community. Uh, and, and so looking at, at just broader issues uh, that are going to affect the entire state, I also have to look at um, how my community lean, leans in that way or how they want me to represent them. Sometimes there's a conflict. Um, you know, when I, I think back when it was... Um, uh, liquor sales on Sunday in Minnesota because we didn't have that. And I was like, you know, to me, it's not that big a deal. You know, we've had this forever. If you need something for the weekend, get out there on Friday or Saturday. And there were a lot of differences. And I had to listen to my community to decide which way I was going to vote on that. And so it's listening to your community, getting out there and meeting folks in your community, um, understanding the business infrastructure so you can figure out how to support them. Education. As a teacher, I've sat on education committees both in the House and now the Senate. And um, so I listen a lot and I ask my, my education leaders here in my community, in my school districts, you know, what are you struggling with? What are the resources that you need? What are your successes that we can build on? And then, you know, listening in with um, across the state as they um, as those school districts also shared what they're struggling with or how they can make it uh, a better learning environment. And then doing my homework, understanding the issues um, and then either either championing those things and supporting other legislators who might be carrying the bills or taking on those that responsibility and um and authoring a bill myself to make some positive change. Um, so during the session, it's really intense. This year we start uh, January 31st. It's a bonding year. So we're looking at money to build up the infrastructure across the entire state. And that includes like our, our state universities and colleges, bridges, roads, um, trains, uh, transit, all of those things. A lot of it will be unbonding, but we'll still have to do deal with other issues. And that's really intense. It's from January until May. And then in the interim, like now, 
I do. I still have a lot of meetings. I retired from my teaching um, career just a year ago, so I could really focus on this. A lot of meetings, and now we're looking at the legislation we're going to carry next year, and I'm trying to understand some of the important legislation that we're going to be talking about. So it's it's it, even though they say it's part-time work, we're kind of always, we always kind of have our head in there. Yep. It sounds definitely like a full-time gig when you're talking about all the different facets and, and the things that you're responsible for and the things that you're working on. It's interesting. Um, in, in it's a, different across the the nation. There are full time legislators, and they receive a salary, a full time salary, um, and have all kinds of assistance. Uh, other states have um, uh, they they don't get a salary. They get per diem when they're in session or when they're working, and so and they don't have assistance or they don't have offices like their desk is. I think in North Dakota, this is how it is. Um, um, Representative Ruth Buffalo told me, no, her desk is the desk on the floor of the the, the house. They don't have a separate um, area outside of, of the, the floor. So it, it's different across the nation um, how this is all handled with salary and assistance and offices. So that was a real eye opener for me when I've been learning this. Yeah, it's incredible how different it is in, in each place. So when you're looking to get into run, um, yeah, knowing what what salary is going to be like and what the requirements are and all yeah. those pieces, um, I feel like that's something that we we should be looking at in the future is making it making it um, you know easier for people of different financial categories to be able to run. It's you know, it's no surprise that we see so many, you know, rich folks or older folks, retired people who are in office because they're the ones that have the time and are, you know, they can afford to be there. Yep. Yeah, it, it really excludes a number of people that would be really valuable. Uh, we need to hear the voice of those that are not that come from a really broad variety of communities, socioeconomic, um, you know, folks of color. We need that vast, vast variety to really get a full picture of, of what the work is that we need to do. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to chat more with Senator Mary Kanesh. Betsy Brandvik is serious about a few things, community, family, coffee, and being a little extra. Parties and play are a normal part of Betsy's days at the business she started with her husband, Lane. Backyard Play Cafe in Dickinson, North Dakota opened in October of 2020, and it's part play space for kids, part party room, and part coffee shop. People can bring their kids for play dates, meet for coffee, or host a party with Backyard Play Cafe's balloon installations. That's where Betsy gets a little extra. All the pieces of the cafe get equal attention, the coffee too. Betsy's a self-described coffee snob who values a perfect cup and consistency. If you find yourself in Dickinson and need a place for the kiddos to get some energy out, and you need to fill your own cup too, Backyard Play Cafe's indoor playground is a perfect place to visit. Find more info at BackyardPlayCafe.com. You love what you do. 
Let Lady Boss Creative help you share that with the world. We're a women-led team who loves to see other women-owned and led businesses succeed and thrive. When you work with the Lady Boss Creative team, we'll combine your unique vision and goals with our creative strategy and marketing expertise to create a brand that resonates with your mission and audience. From logo design to website creation to jumpstarting your social media strategy, we're here to help you propel your brand forward. Visit ladybosscreative.com to get more information about how we can help your small business. Welcome back to the Lady Boss Podcast. I'm Laura Caroon, here with Minnesota State Senator from District 41, Mary Kunech. So, in late 2021, the Minnesota legislator approved a new state office dedicating time and resources to missing and murdered Indigenous people, the first of its kind in the country. Will you talk more about missing and murdered Indigenous women crisis that we're in and why you initiated a task force that was dedicated to it? I'd love to. (laughs) One of my most favorite things uh, to talk about. Minnesota is really leading on understanding and addressing the historic trauma of missing and murdered Indigenous women in our state. And um, I was elected to the House in 2016. So my first session was 2017. And in that, uh, the interim between um, sessions in the summer, I listened to the report coming out of Canada on their national uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women's report. And it was the same summer that um, North Dakota woman, uh, Savannah Graywin LaFontaine, went missing. Uh, and her, her she was eight months pregnant. And when they found her, they found her body in the river. The baby had been cut from her womb and the baby was missing. And it was such a horrifying story, but I, I, I have to say it's it's as horrifying as any of the other stories that I have heard about women, Native women that have been murdered very brutally or have gone missing, never to be heard of again. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, you know, Canada is doing this report. Why isn't the United States doing it? And then um, there, right away, there was legislation being worked on in, in North Dakota. And I thought, oh my gosh, North Dakota is doing this legislation. Why isn't Minnesota? And then I had like this epiphany, like, oh my gosh, I'm a state legislator. That's my job to do that. And so I marched back into the, um, the Capitol and started putting together a piece of legislation to create a task force to study the missing and murdered women here in Minnesota. But I um, was really intentional, intentional about including the, the community, the indigenous community. And so the first thing I did is I reached out to some of the elders that I knew and some of the women that I knew were leading, um, you know, already working on um, resources for for women and said, should we do this? This is extremely painful subject. This is extremely personal subject. This is extremely um, violent uh, issue. Do we want to bring it out into the public? And they said, absolutely. We have to start telling our story. We have to start letting folks know that this is happening and we need some positive change around it. So that started the the legislation to create this task force. And in the end, we had a task force of 
close to 40 people on it. Um, we had 18 months to do it in spite of um, COVID, and we got a really good report done. Uh, you can go online and just Google Minnesota MMIW report and read that report. But at the end of the report, we um, we had a, a, a number of recommendations or mandates. We knew that even though we had this report, we didn't want it stuck up on a shelf somewhere gathering dust or in a desk somewhere. Somebody pull out every so often and go, bravo, Minnesota. Um, we needed to continue this work. And so we had real actionable um, recommendations at the end of our report. And the very, very first one was to create a missing and murdered indigenous relatives office. And um, so with the success of uh, the task force, we um, put together those recommendations and I created a, um, a piece of legislation this past legis uh, legislative session to create that office within our state. And it's a permanent office um, and it will continue the work that we had done um, that we had started or, or um, recognized in the report. So this Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives Office, and we're calling it Relatives Office because the violence is not just, um, you know, the high rates of violence. Min um, in Native American women and girls have the highest rates of violence, but we know it's also violence against our boys and men and our two-spirit folks, our LGBTQ community. And so we named it uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives. And they that office will continue to advocate in the legislature around the mandates that we had in our report. They will um, advocate and build relationships across state agencies. They're going to continue the research because data, um, you know, relevant, actual, factual data has but was missing from the very start, especially across the nation, where data either is not collected or it's collected kind of haphazardly or it's not a uniform way of collection. And then we also want to make sure that um, some of the cases that are happening now and have happened in the past will be reviewed. So bringing in some of the cold case issues and addressing those, um, reviewing sentencing guidelines against sex traffickers and those that, um, that are, are apprehended, that um, committed the murders or the violence, and um, just continue the work that, that we, we started within that task force. And one good thing that also happened, not only did we create that Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives Office, it's the first in the nation, it's embedded in our state government now, it's permanent, it's funded, fabulous. But we knew, I, you know, I knew right from the start that the intersection of violence against um, women um, not just Native women, but African-American women is so, they're just so interwoven and connected um, that we also created the Missing and Murdered African-American Women's Task Force this past session to do the very same thing we did with our, um, with our Indigenous Task Force. Can you talk a little bit about why Indigenous women are at a higher risk for violence? Oh my gosh. Yep. And again, a lot of these are, are for, uh, our common, um, reasons within, um, 
the communities of color as well. And really, it, it goes all the way back to um, colonization. When, uh, you know, white European men stepped onto this continent or any continent, uh, immediately the violence against their women and children um, and, the, and, you know, the annihilation, the genocide of those communities was absolutely evident. And that has continued on, um, you know, over these hundreds of years. And so for Native women, um, you know, it, it's uh, important to know that, that there was intentional um, reason or, or intent to annihilate, to get rid of Native folks. And women and girls are, you know, an easy target. They're, um, uh, that, you know, you have to understand that the sex trade that happened back then and the, the slavery and the the attitude that that these women are there to be used abused and then thrown away and nobody's looking at them they're sort of um there's they're they're sort of hidden you know one of those little dirty secrets in our in our society and so um women have just been an easy target in that way and as things have progressed you know through our country's um progress you know, we look back at um, the the foster care system and so many of our, I mean, Native American kids are removed from their homes and put into foster care at the highest rates of any other group of, of um, people. And that definitely adds to their vulnerability. Um, we've been hearing a lot about the um, boarding school era when... Um, when children were literally pulled from their parents' arms, from their homes, forced to go across the, the, the country, in, in many cases, to boarding schools where they were immediately, their hair was cut, their, their, any of their cultural clothing or items that they brought with them were removed and destroyed. They weren't allowed to speak their language. They were beaten for using their language or practicing any of their cultural um, 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 values. And so it was like, you know, they were going to beat the Indian out of these kids. Uh, my family, uh, I, you know, one short story is that my uncle, my great uncle was sent a number of times to Carlisle in Pennsylvania from, this, from South Dakota reservation to the Dakotas. And we, we went into the Carlisle records and found this card. It's sort of like a behavior card. And it had a number of incidences listed there. Um, and it said running, running, running. So we know my great uncle tried to run away and, and get back home a number of times. And it wasn't until the very last time that he um, ran away, jumped a train, fell off and had his leg cut off that they finally let him go home. And so, you know, these kind of vulnerabilities and trauma is, are buried deep in the, the genes and the genetics and the, the mindset of our indigenous people. And so oftentimes they wouldn't report violence, especially the women, because nobody was listening anyway. Nobody would do anything anyway. And so <clears throat> these are some of the reasons there's more. There's plenty. I could go on all day, you know, the jurisdictional issues, who's 
responsible for investigating um, <clears throat> why the media hasn't paid any attention to this. And so, um, you know, those are all reasons why this has been happening for so long. It's, it's interesting to me to think about how, you know, you talked about reasons that you got into politics and thinking about the environment as well, how environmental issues like the Bakken oil boom and extracting, you know, natural resources from the land, those, they coincide with this, you know, sex trade and violence against women with bringing, you know, outsiders, bringing men into these areas, um, can you talk a little bit about that, you know, particularly the, the Bakken oil boom or, you know, areas in the line three in Minnesota? Absolutely. <clears throat> there is direct correlation to these extraction industries and the violence against um, the, the rise in violence in those communities, as well as for women and specifically Native American women, because a lot of these extraction areas are in remote areas that they had sent, you know, put the Indians on for reservations because there's nothing out there. You know, it's just wasteland. What better place to put them? They won't thrive. Um, <clears throat> it's crappy land. Who cares? And then lo and behold, you know, they discover oil or minerals underneath there. And they bring in thousands and thousands of men who are earning a good income, who have uh, far away from their family, oftentimes far away from any, you know, any entertainment or activity that they can do in a healthy way. And um, lo and behold, the violence, the murder, the rapes, the sex trafficking goes up in those areas, especially that have, you know, specific man camps, as they call them. So like trailer um, trailer parks where these men are, are staying with nothing to do. And, um, you, you know, we just see the rise in violence happen. And we saw that in the Bakken fields. And we also have seen that in, on line three here in Minnesota. Enbridge, a Canadian company running a pipeline through uh, Indian country. And one of the biggest concerns was that there would be man camps and this kind of violence. And so um, we had to be sure that, you know, we tried to make sure that this wasn't going to happen. And when we had hearings on it, um, nobody would listen to it. And they would laugh at the women who came to, to testify about it um, and, and not take them seriously and say, oh, our men won't do that. But lo and behold, just this year, we, there were two sex trafficking stings that happened. And um, there were Enbridge men that were caught in that sting. Absolutely. And so this is one of the reasons that that when we look at environmental issues, we have to look at these kind of issues as well. So what can we do to begin changing this narrative? Well, I think we can, first of all, educate us ourselves around the violence against uh, our women of color and look at like sentencing guidelines or um, these jurisdictional issues and um, ensuring that there are investigators and police officers that are going to investigate when, when women come forward with these, these allegations, um, that we have the resources there to help them through these troubled times and, and, and you know, afterwards, because there are, um, you know, there's PTSD, there's social, emotional um, issues that are happening no matter what. 
And um, it's just, you know, addressing it and acknowledging it and then putting in, in um, safe guidelines so that, that, that this ends. And when you recognize that somebody's in trouble or struggling, what can you do to help? Or what, how can you help some of the, the, um, the resource centers that are already there that are helping women and children and families through these tough times? How can you support them either financially or by volunteering as well? What are some of your goals for the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives Office? Well, um, one of the pieces of legislation I'll be working on this next year will be um, to create a fund to uh, kind of tease out information through a reward system. So we'll, we'll, we'll have some money there. Um, you know, oftentimes within a community, somebody knows something it might just be one piece here, one piece there, but you know, oftentimes a reward will be the incentive that that is needed to get that information. And then um, we'll continue to work on the Missing and Murder African American Task Force, um, building those relationships with uh, our own agencies, but also at the federal level because we now have um, Secretary of the Interior uh, Deb Holland, who has created a task force and um, see what we can do at that federal level to continue the work. Okay, so the last question that we always like to ask is, what do you think women need right now? Um, women need the support and the encouragement to um, sometimes step out of their comfort zone. Uh, you know, we, we all know women that are just like natural leaders. And you just think, oh, man, that, you know, I want to work with that person or I want to hang out with that person or they're, they, they have such a wealth of knowledge and experience. And you're like, wow, I wish I could be like that or I wish I knew what that person knew. And oftentimes we come together around um, unique issues, oftentimes on how we can um, best uh, make sure that our, that our that our families are thriving, that our communities are thriving, um, that that um, you know women are thriving in the business world, or they have the resources they need to make sure that their kids are getting a good education. Those are the things that often you know arise, and so when we find somebody that is a leader, or we recognize some of those leadership values within ourselves reaching out to each other and saying, look, I'm not quite ready to do this, but you would make a great school board member or um, you know so much about um, business. You know, will you help us build up our businesses or support each other in that way? And that's really what it comes down to is supporting each other in a really positive way. Um, it's... It, it's oftentimes that we might be competing against each other, but recognizing that there is a time and a place for each of us to use our skills and, um, and finding that niche. And maybe public office isn't your niche, but then look around, like I said, and find um, somebody, a Native person or a, a, a woman or somebody that really has had those life experience that can bring good, positive change 
and then support them in whatever way that you you can, you know, either donate to their campaigns or be their campaign manager or make some of those phone calls, door knock, lit drop, or, you know, just hold them in a, you know, in a supportive way that can um, really make a good change for them in your community and then also for you. Well said. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Senator Kanesh. I'm always so interested to hear from women in elected office, and I'm so grateful to have women like you willing to step up and be a, a voice for our community. So thank you for all of the great work that you are doing. I am happy to uh, to be here today and um, promote women, <laughs> women in any way. We got to stick together and get this good stuff done. So for our listeners who want to connect with you or find out more about what's happening in the legislature, where can they go for more information? Sure. Um, well, I do have a campaign web website. It's just Mary Kunish and the number four MN. Um, uh, and uh, you can also go to my Senate website in Minnesota. Um, well, it's a, a more of a, a landing site within our state government and uh, listen up. But there's, um, there's been, I've been, you know, I've been in the news a little bit. So even if you just Google me, you'll, you'll see and hear some of the good work that I've been able to do as a, as a legislator, um, not just around uh, MMIW issues, but I also carried the ERA bill and have done a lot of work on education issues. But um, um, just look me up and, and connect with me if you have any questions. I'm happy to talk with you as an individual as well. Thank you so much. Absolutely. This has been another episode of the Lady Boss Podcast. Thank you so much to our guest and to all of you for listening in. If you want to hear more, subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for listening to the Lady Boss Podcast. Are you a Lady Boss? Find all of our events, resources, and ways to get connected at ladybossmidwest.com and connect with us on social at Lady Boss Midwest.